Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, James Harkin, and Andrew Hunter-Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is that after his death, Anton Chekhov was brought back to Russia in a refrigerated railway car labelled Fresh Oysters. Wow. <laughs> so was he on ice? Yeah. Oh, I don't know if he was actually on ice. I know that he was he was pre-chilled. Um, was he? Before that, I think he, well, he was, he was chilled because the th- last thing before he died was he had some champagne, which would have been cold as well. Oh, yeah. So uh, really? this is all, yeah, this is in 1904. He was 44 years old, very young. Um, to have completely, you know, revolutionized Russian literature. Um, and he was in a spa in Germany because he had tuberculosis. Uh, and the doctor arrived. And when the doctor arrived, because things were nearing the end, his tuberculosis was really bad at this point. Uh, he sat up straight and he said to the doctor, Ich sterbe, which is I'm dying. And the doctor just said, let's have some champagne. Because there was this German <laughs> medical convention, which was that if you can't do anything for the patient, you just get them some champagne. And that means they know what's going on. And so do you. Okay, uh, that's interesting. But yeah. he didn't really speak very good German, right? Uh, Tolchekov. And so I find it quite interesting that he'd picked up this one. He must have known that he might need that phrase. <laughs> soon. He yeah. did know he was going to die. So yeah. he, he said before he boarded the train to Germany, he said to his friend, uh, I'm off now. I won't see you again. I'm going to Germany to die. So I suppose he was prepped to wow. check out the I'm dying phrase yeah. as soon as he got there. He, yeah, he was a medical doctor, wasn't he? So he sort of, yeah. his whole life was sort of, he saw the little hints of what was going to happen in his near future. He thought he would try and go to the spa to sort it out. It didn't work out. But what's amazing is he got given this big flute of champagne and he downed it all in one go. And then he sort of laid back. And after a few moments, that was it. He was gone. What an ending. Wow. Yeah. Well, they say that, but I mean, you don't down a massive flute of champagne without there being at least a little burp at the end, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Probably just before he went, there would have been a big belch, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. The account that we have is from Olga Knipper, his his wife, uh, then widow. And she sort of says it was very calm and very peaceful. And he sort of laid down, turned his head and Mm. passed away. But there are other accounts that were written that didn't come out for years and years afterwards by another kid who was in the room who was assisting the doctor. And as James said, there was a sort of great burpy groan. Oh, right was there? Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Knocks out the poetry of Olga's account. Old Olga declined to mention that. She <laughs> wow. was one of Dennis the Menace's pets, wasn't she? Nipper. <laughs> Nipper. <laughs> <laughs> well, his um, body then um, went to Moscow in this train um, which said fresh oysters on it. Uh, but when he arrived in um, Moscow station, there were people kind of waiting for his body because he was a big, famous, you know, hero in, in Russia. But apparently, um, this is what I read, um, when he came back, there was another person who died the same time called General Keller. Uh, and the state had organized a big sort of funfair for his body returning and a military band and a parade and stuff. And so a load of Chekhov's fans just started following General Keller's funeral procession, <laughs> thinking it was no. Chekhov. Which this is, he, was this in, is of... he was in the refrigerated railway car next to it, labeled Fresh Scallops. Yeah. And there was a bit of mayhem. Um, yeah. It's a comedy, so it's a Fawlty Tower style comedy mix up where you yes. want Basil Fawlty to expose at the end what he thinks is a pile of oysters and is actually the corpse <laughs> of. Anna, it's so weird that you mentioned that because I was thinking about Fawlty Towers already for a different reason related to Chekhov's death, which is that after he died, Same. they put him in a laundry basket, which is kind of like the episode The Kipper and the Corpse. It is. Um, this whole oh, wow. life is based on Fawlty Towers. And what was his wife's surname? Kipper. Kipper. The Knipper and the Cops. The Knipper and the Cops. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Are we blowing shit wide open again? Oh no. Let's, not, let's, let's have a week off blowing Too shit late. wide open. Too late. The Knipper uh, and the Cops. That's got, there's no such thing as the Knipper and the Cops. <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but they couldn't fit him in properly because obviously he was, um, 
he was a little stiff by the time they tried to fold him up and laundry is more flexible than Chekhov. <laughs> and so he was in a half sitting position in the basket. Oh my Pretty God. undignified, I know. And it was it was to hide him from the other guests, basically. It's, so it's it a bit more dignified guess. than, you know, how you uh, fold laundry by two people holding each end of it and walking towards <laughs> each other. You can't do uh, that with Chekhov, can you? No, <laughs> no way. But it's really nice as a witness account of someone accidentally passing them as they were trying to sneak Chekhov out no. in the laundry basket. Yeah. And he said, I walked behind the man carrying the body. Light and shade from the burning torches flickered and leaped over the dead man's face. And at times it seemed to me as if Chekhov was scarcely uh, perceptibly smiling at the fact that by decreeing that his body should be carried out in a laundry basket, fate had linked him with humor even in death. Oh, that's so nice, because I was just going to say, I reckon Chekhov would have loved that way of yeah. editing because he was kind of a comedy-loving guy. <laughs> he would have really enjoyed that, and I suppose that, that guy saw the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he started out as a comedy writer, really, didn't he? And a well, comedian. he thought he was a comedy writer at the very end as well, but not everyone else agreed with him. Yeah, very confusing. <laughs> oh, really? Is that the thing where, like, with the cherry orchard, he, yeah. was, he was insistent the cherry orchard was a comedy. And um, the famous director who put on the first production was Konstantin Stanislavski, who insisted mm. it was a tragedy and staged it as such. And it's kind of sad because it's the last thing that was put on before he died. And Chekhov was furious wow. that it hadn't been interpreted as a sort of a farce. I think it's amazing because you have um, Chekhov, who's like one of the great short story writers and playwrights of history and then you've got Stanislavski who's one of the great theatre producers ever and you know he's where the Stanislavski method comes from and you know when American actors are doing the method that's basically the Stanislavski method that they kind of brought over to America so you've got two greats who came together and Chekhov wrote this play and on the front page it says comedy it says a cherry orchard a comedy and then Stanislavski writes back to him going uh, I think it's a tragedy mate and it's like <laughs> wow. how can you say that to the writer how can you say yeah. I don't think it's a comedy I think it's amazing Bold. and then um, Chekhov wrote um, when he first saw this play he wrote how awful it is an act that ought to take 12 minutes at most lasts 40 minutes he has ruined the play for me and Stanislavski wrote, the blossoms had just begun to appear when the author arrived and messed everything up for us. So it's like, wow. these two wow. greats, and they just couldn't agree. I think it's amazing. That's, That's incredible. Really and then in between there is Olga Knipper, who acted in all of Stanislavski's versions of Chekhov. And that is how, yeah, that's how Chekhov eventually so it was be a situation where he probably didn't want to see the plays but he had to see the plays because he was madly in love with this girl uh and get closer to her and because they eventually married after she'd done i think four of his plays or so but she that must have been so awkward because i think the cherry orchard was after they were married and she must have been so torn between these two people i mean do you think she would do one scene serious and one scene comedy <laughs> or yeah, maybe when yeah. ever Chekhov came into the room, she'd put on a red nose and some big boots <laughs> and kind of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She, bizarrely, she acted in The Cherry Orchard in 1904. She was Madame Ranovskaya, who's so basically the main part, controversy over who is the main part. So 1904, and then she did it again in 1943. Same part. <laughs> wow. That, oh that's got to be one of the longest gaps between the same role she was 36 for the first and 75 for the second wow. that's she incredible. outlived him by a really long way because he died in 1904 and she died in 1959 do you know um, i find the weirdest thing about Chekhov is that as we were saying before he's this huge author and he's uh, today he's still considered to be one of the all-time greats i kept reading in a few places that just he's sort of under shakespeare as the person with the most film adaptions and plays that are on and I can't, I haven't seen any of his stuff and I can't think of a single short story. And I just find that fascinating uh, that I read a lot, I see a lot of things, yet this guy is second to Shakespeare. His plays get put on a lot, I would say, and the, definitely yeah. in London you yeah. would get it. We had tickets to watch The Seagull just before lockdown. We never got to see it in the end with, um, what's her name from Game of Thrones? Amelia Clark, was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah, his plays are excellent. I love those. But honestly, Dan and anyone, he is in my top three favourite writers. I would sometimes say he's my favourite writer. His short stories are heaven. You'd, you'd sit down and read one of those before you read and Cloud Your Way Through the Merry Wives of Windsor. Definitely. And good news, they're quite short, Dan. Um, I read long books. I read <laughs> I read, um, just for this, I read, what's it called? The the woman and the dog, is it called? The woman with oh, the, the woman dog. woman and the lap dog or whatever. Yeah. Dog, yeah. And I've tried to read it in Russian because, you know, I'm learning Russian a little bit and I'm kind of okay. And the 
standard of writing is it's quite simple. It's quite easy to read. It's like he has lots to say about the human condition and about, you know, love and the way that people react with each other. But actually, it's in really nice easy to understand writing. I can read big words. I can read big words, James. (laughs) We should say that not everyone respected him quite as much. So Tolstoy hated his stuff. Tolstoy said that Chekhov is an appalling playwright, (laughs) but at least he's not as bad as Shakespeare. So he was (laughs) comparing the two, but slightly. he also really hated Shakespeare. But actually, they were good mates, weren't they, Tolstoy and Chekhov? Yeah, they were. I think he said that right to his face. He was like, I hate this, but at least it's not as bad as Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he loved his short stories. Yeah. Um, so Tolstoy used to, his daughter, Tolstoy's daughter said that um, Tolstoy used to make them read the short stories aloud at dinner and his early funny stuff. And the daughter said that Tolstoy, my father, was usually a good reader, but with Chekhov, he was often quite unable to go on. So infectious did his helpless fits of laughter become. And he would sort of laugh until he cried. And he, I think he was one of the people who said, why doesn't Chekhov understand that he's just a great comedy writer? You know, stick to that. Right. <laughs> and he just knocked them out as well. That's what I love about them. He Did decided he? he wanted to be a writer because he needed to support his family. Uh, and he just, it was only over about 20 years that he wrote all these things, like 700 short stories or something. And they were all literally just like, okay, we'll get this out to the to the Moscow Times, to the St. Petersburg Times. Every month or so, you would have at least two or three of Chekhov's stories in there. They'd be all under different pen names. You didn't know they were all from the same person. Well, someone who I've become a bit obsessed off the back of Chekhov now is a lady called Constance Garnett. Mm. Now, this is just what a remarkable story. So it's really thanks to her that we have Chekhov in the English language, as well as Tolstoy um, and other great Russian writers. She sat down with a Russian dictionary, having not spoken a single word of Russian until the age of 29, and she translated all of these books. And that is how the English-speaking world got introduced to all of these people and just a remarkable person she is she's such a weirdo she just (laughs) randomly decided to withdraw and devote her life to that and yeah changed 20th century literature i guess because all literature was then influenced by the russian greats and she churned it out too she did like hundreds of chekhov (laughs) stories all of turgenev all of tolstoy's novels almost all of tolstoy all dostoevsky oh my god i hope she started with chekhov uh, yeah, ease, ease her way in and the reason she started is because she had a difficult pregnancy in 1891 where she was kind of confined so she thought nothing else to do except learn Russian wow. and she did and then 1894 yeah. she just Amazing. abandoned her husband and her toddler went to Russia and hung out with Tolstoy for a bit and was like can I, can I start translating in novels please Amazing. yeah and she and she didn't start easy, you know. One of the first translations was a religious and philosophical piece by Leo Tolstoy, which was called uh, The Kingdom God is Within You. I mean, a really ew. hardcore first thing. Yeah. And she had terrible vision at the end, so she kept translating sort of into her late life, but she would have someone sitting there reading it out um, while she translated. So she sort of had assistants alongside her helping her to do it. And the reason that they became so um, popular around the world is because she was she was from a publishing family her husband worked in publishing as well and she was able to press them as really cheap books so people could afford them and they could just get out there into the wild in a in a way that people could could buy them affordably that's that's the real reason that they into the had wild. traction into it, the yeah. wild Russian novels galloping through the rainforest <laughs> by Lou Free I God. tried to find if there's a single removals firm uh, in the UK called Uncle Vanya and I can't find one. <laughs> Jesus. And I think, what a gap in the market that is. Yeah, yeah. What about a, um, is there like a really happy tree surgeon called the Cheery Orchard? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. There's so many gaps in the market everywhere. Are these gaps in the market or just terrible jokes? I'm not sure. <laughs> I would trust a removals firm called Uncle Vanya. I think these guys are going to look after my books. Okay. He, his nickname in the UK was Willy Wetleg. Really? No. Why? D.H. Lawrence nicknamed him Willy Wetleg. Willy Wetleg. Um, just, I, I don't know why. It's, but audiences in the UK were not wowed by early Chekhov plays because they didn't like the lack yeah. of obvious plots or clear meaning. Some of, the, mm. some of them are quite, you know, non-committal and there isn't a definitive answer. That's right. I read a review in the Daily Express uh, from the time which said that The Cherry Orchard was a silly, tiresome, boring comedy. There is no plot. The orchard is for sale and certain dull people are upset because it must be sold. 
Wow. That's, it's wow. a decent summary of the plot. Oh. <laughs> is it? Um, so this is coming from someone who, as I say, doesn't hasn't read any of Chekhov. Was the idea that it was all character studies and just amazing dialogue and sort of yeah. insight into the human condition? I mean, it's quite a lot of social commentary, a lot of stuff about um, kind of aristocracy. Can we spoiler the? Can we spoiler the cherry orchard, or are we going to get? In trouble I don't for think. That? Oh, I don't God. think we're going to go for the ending. Okay. Uh, there's big messed up families having crazy yeah. philosophical debates and then shagging each other and um, getting angry and making up stuff like that. You know, it's like neighbors. We haven't even mentioned Chekhov's rifle. Or Chekhov's gun. Oh, yeah. It's impossible to find out uh, if Chekhov actually owned a gun because whenever you Google the phrase Chekhov's gun, it only comes up with the dramatic principle that he kept uh-huh. saying, which is if there is a gun hanging on the wall in the first act, it has to go off uh, in the yeah. second. Pretty, And he said different versions of it, but that's broadly it. Don't introduce a plot element that's a big, heavy thing and then not play it out. But I kept on trying to find out if he did have a gun. Yeah, why? I have... What? Why? Why you try and find that out? Yeah. Well, I think that's interesting. It's relevant. Did he have Chekhov's gun? Is was did it real? Gun? Yeah. Was he? Yeah, did... You know, could he really talk about guns, or had he never seen one in his life? And he's, you know, exactly. Was he bluffing? Yeah. Sorry for trying to do my homework, Dan. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. I don't know why I questioned it. No, I was just curious if there was an extra thing about it that no, I didn't nothing. realize. There here's a pointless. Um, here's a pointless fact about Chekhov. Uh, the seagull in Russian yep. is um, Chaika. It's called. That's Russian, for, but it's not Russian for seagull. It's just Russian for gull, uh, because actually the play is set in the middle of Ukraine or Russia, nowhere near like thousand miles from the sea. Oh. Uh, and so, yeah, we just translated it as seagull, but really it should be gull. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's probably bloody Constance Garnet, isn't it? Bringing her seagull-based <laughs> thinking. <laughs> See, that's and a good course, fact to look into, Andy. That's the kind of thing you should be focusing on. That will absolutely delight ornithological fans because, of course, there is no such thing as a seagull. Yeah. So, and there's no such thing right. as the seagull either. Yeah. There you go. Nice. Yes. Did you guys spot that thing about the theory that he didn't die of tuberculosis and how they've been looking into... They've reopened the no. case. Have they've they? reopened have the case. Have they? No, but I'm like, into it. Come on. This this was a thing whereby... Did he drown in a bed of oysters? <laughs> <laughs> Suffocated in some laundry basket. He, um, he supposedly died of a brain hemorrhage. And this was, this was scientists took some proteins that were on his shirt and they analyzed it. And um, they, they think what showed up sort of suggests that the tuberculosis was a lifelong thing that he had under control that it was manageable but actually he was suffering from huge pains of a, of a brain hemorrhage and yeah so they they just analyzed this is and this is only a few years ago that they managed to get these samples and that's the new dug, theory they dig them up again together yeah, it's a good question it was on his clothes so i assume that maybe the clothes yeah, must have relics. been saved okay. as relics yeah. yeah got it it's not what you want when someone says of a historical character, he actually didn't die this way. What we want is he was murdered by his furious lover. Yeah. By his, yeah. by a gun, which may or may not have belonged to him. <laughs> <laughs> if they accused his wife of killing him and she didn't really, she could say, I was done up like a clipper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that earlier this year, a woman reported that she was bleeding from her eyes whenever she was on her period. Wow. Is, she, is it eye a euphemism? Nope. Is that, okay. None of I that sentence you, is euphemistic. You wouldn't say eyes plural, would you? Um, <laughs> so that's from, mental. Yeah. Do, so, does it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so many, yeah. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the questions and then I'll tell you. But Okay, can you buy eye tampons? You cannot buy eye tampons, no. Oh, well, then I feel really sorry for is it the same? Is it the same blood that's kind of travelled through the body and up out the eyes? Okay, like that's... If you, if you that's, squeezed her that's, by the tummy? That started off as a reasonable question, so I'll answer it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there is a thing um, that, it, that can happen called vicarious menstruation. Uh, and it seems to be a kind of hormonal thing. We're still not exactly sure why it happens, but it means people can bleed from different parts of their body uh, when they're on the period. Um, so you, people have been um, documented as bleeding from the nose. 
that's quite common, like nosebleeds, um, the nipples, the intestines, the skin, things like that. It's extremely, extremely rare. Uh, but earlier this year, uh, this is a report in the British Medical Journal, there was a 25-year-old who visited an emergency room and she was having blood coming from her, like near from her tear ducts when she was on her period. Uh, and there's also a thing called hemolacria, um, which can make blood come out of your eyes. There's lots of different things that can cause that. Um, so that could wow. be caused by, you know, abnormality in the sinuses, problems with the tear ducts. There's lots of things that can cause that. But the doctors went through everything that that could have been and realized it couldn't be any of those things. And they think that this is vicarious menstruation and hemolacria put together. And this is the first time that it's ever been reported in any medical journal. Now, it seems to be quite benign. They can't see any other problems from it it's just a mm. thing that happened uh they gave her some hormonal therapy uh, and it has gone away so it seems to be a hormonal thing like the uh vicarious menstruation would be um but that's it this is a thing that happened extraordinary so it's not her womb wandering around her body we're not about to say aristotle was right we're not gonna <laughs> say that oh that would have been the biggest shit to blow wide open of all <laughs> everything <laughs> I've read that there was a 1995 study that found that 18% of fertile women do have some blood in their tears. Is that right? Trace hmm. amounts of blood, yeah. Huh. 7% of pregnant women, 8% of men, 18% of fertile women, and then post-menopause, no women have it. Oh, I see. Wow. So it That's comes... study, uh, but... Interesting. So you can cut down that phrase, blood, sweat and tears. You can just say blood and sweat, or tears and sweat. Yeah, yeah. Mm, definitely. Yeah. That's good. That's going to save us all some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did also say that some people can sweat blood due to vicarious menstruation. So you could just say blood. Oh, yeah. oh great. <laughs> Much easier. If anyone ever says to you blood, sweat and tears, just go, it's tautology, mate. Time. <laughs> Do you think, uh, and I'm sure you don't, uh, that groups of women <laughs> living together start to experience synchronized menstruation? Oh, uh, it's what people say, but... I think, mm. I've read things that say that that's not true but anecdotally so many people whenever i've said to that to them have said well it is true so i don't know what you're talking about yeah so. that's i saw that as well it's medically according to the reports not true i know exactly. so many women who've told me that that's what's happened with them so well, who do we believe yeah i think the larger more recent studies which say it doesn't happen I but I reckon that's possibly. what they was that's what they were saying to Aristotle back in the day, weren't they? <laughs> they're saying I've spoken to lots of women and they say that their wombs do not move around their body. <laughs> and you're like, nope, nope, this is what the scientists say. Studies have shown. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think the largest and longest studies have found no evidence for it. There is plenty of random overlap that might be seen as synchrony if you look at yeah. it through a shorter time window. So there are plenty of reasons why you might think it is happening, but but no, it's I think it's confirmation bias. I think it just overlaps enough that every four months that happens and they go, oh, my God, we must be synchronizing. Right. OK. Mm. But it does happen with lions. That's the key. So maybe what? What? everyone you've asked has actually been a lion. In <laughs> um, do you guys think, and I don't think you do, but do you think that bears are attracted to menstruation? Ah, oh. Attracted how? <laughs> just as in section. Come closer to what? Yeah, them. yeah. Well, Fenella's, Fenella's cousin was once told to escape a forest because the, the guide found out she was menstruating. It was like, you've got to get out of here now. And they just and left she, her on her own to just... Yeah, she had, what? she had to leave the wood and her, and her husband stayed. And, and she, she was like, no, it's a never cool found trip. again. She's now living <laughs> in a gingerbread house. <laughs> wow. wow. Really? That's um, amazing. And what... Did she get attacked by a bear, Dan, no, on the way no, out? No, because no. I, I have a feeling James is about to say that that's a myth. Well... It is a myth, but I'm still a bit worried about this guy guitar <laughs> where they just say, anyone who's menstruating, get out of here now and you're on your own. Wow. Um, there was a study relatively recently done uh, where 15 used tampons were presented to male black bears uh, that were feeding in a garbage dump uh, and they found there was no uh, reaction. Uh, from what? the bears. I mean, at least, at least they had the courtesy not to go. Oh, get out of my face! <laughs> but all this study says to me is that bears prefer garbage dumps to use tampons. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that, but yeah, could be always... the second best thing on the menu. <laughs> yeah, the um, a lot of different tribes think that periods will attract dangerous animals. I think the Wari people of Brazil 
uh, the women wouldn't be allowed to go into the forests when they were on their periods mm. because jaguars be, would be attracted to them. And they weren't allowed to have sex either because then jaguars would be attracted to the men who were out hunting because they'd had sex with someone. Oh, wow. It's like It mm. Follows. It's yes. like It Follows. <laughs> Cracking film and wow. a niche reference that some people will get. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, but they also have another really cool practice, uh, these guys. Or oh, this is actually a thing I was reading in the 60s about them, so it might have changed. But whenever a mother was on her period, her whole family, her husband and children, all painted themselves with red food colouring. So you painted yourselves <laughs> oh, wow, red. Wow, that's she amazing. That is such a good idea. Weird, right? I think we should wow. bring that in. Kind of oh a hassle. Goodness. Bit messy. You could you paint. Your... And food colouring only comes in those tiny, tiny vials. Yeah. True. So, what you could do is paint yourself in the new Pantone shade uh, called Period, um, which they brought out mm. relatively recently. Um, it's, it's very red. It's very, very okay. red. It's not blood red. It's just red, red. Um, but they brought it out, uh, according to them, um, to so people can own their period with self-assurance to stand up and passionately celebrate the exciting and powerful life force they are born with, to feel comfortable, to talk spontaneously and openly about this pure and natural bodily function. And by having some red paint, that will help us to do that. <laughs> but I think if we all painted ourselves red, we'd definitely be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I feel liberated already. <laughs> Paint my wall in period. <laughs> that it's, makes a big it, difference if you go to a property website and they say, that, "Well, this of course is a period property. <laughs> uh, a, lot of, a lot of period features." <laughs> oh my word! Um, sharks also don't go for menstruation. Do they? Mm. They no, they they like fish. It turns out, and they like. <laughs> It, I mean, this was a thing that this is a thing that is also thought. I think, like the bears, you know, they've got a great sense of smell. Sharks, and um, you know, if if uh, you are menstruating, then and you're in the water, um, maybe you're going on a swimming with sharks experience. It might lead to trouble. It turns out, really, they like the chemicals in fish blood, and they uh, have a good enough nose to detect fish from human blood. Um, and also, menstrual blood is mostly not blood. It's mm. it's mostly you know the uh, the lining of the womb, it's secretions, there's a trace of blood, but it's not. Uh... Yes, yeah. So feel free to go swimming with sharks if you're if you're hanging out on the edge of the water, worried about it. Don't be. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone heard of the sanitary products known as sphagnakins? Mm, no, no, they sound a bit scandy. No, okay, it's not scandy. Uh, the name comes from what they were made of: sphag sphagnakins, sphag. Spag. Swag? Oh, like Sphagnum Moss. They're Moss, Sphagnum Moss. Oh. So they used to have the Sphagnum Moss girls, um, which were images that they used to advertise sanitary products made from Andy's favourite material, moss. Wow. There you go. The Sphagnum... The the, the Moss girls. Yeah, they were known as the Sphagnum Moss girls. Wow. When were these... Ladies around? Uh, it was the middle of the 20th century. Is there I can't Moss more. can't do. Is there, <laughs> there's nothing Moss can't do. <laughs> Lovely. Um, one thing that's a, quite a hot potato in a lot of countries is the tampon tax. And um, in Germany in 2019, there was something that was actively done about it in order to raise awareness. So it's taxed as a luxury good. This is in 2019 at 19%. Um, which is ridiculously high in comparison to so many other things, say like books, which are only charged at 7%. So there was a brilliant book that was released called The Tampon Book, which had inside of it 15 tampons, <laughs> which were sold so you could buy them for much cheaper than you would a normal pack um, of tampons uh, in the tax sense. And um, they sold 10,000 copies once they released it. Uh, so it was sort of becoming yeah. a best-selling book in its own right. But... Yeah, tampon tax has been a horrific thing that we've still not solved. Didn't the UK just pass something, though, which... Yeah, I think they have Am just I... passed it, haven't they, in the UK? I don't know. I know you get free sanitary products in schools as of very recently in the oh. UK now. You do have to be um... a pupil. <laughs> Damn it. I, <laughs> I, I say this from bitter experience, all right? <laughs> <laughs> have you got any moss? Has anyone got any moss? Yeah. Just standing on the school gates? <laughs> Or on the school roof, scraping <laughs> on. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that touchscreens can now be operated using muffins. Oh, <laughs> wow. Finally. 
<laughs> well, okay. So this is a discovery by a scientist in Belgium called Florian Heller. And he realized that the electrical field of a capacitive touchscreen could be altered by using different materials. So usually it'd be your finger or it'd be a type of metal, hence styluses. Um, and he discovered that if you used a fresh out of the oven muffin, that the moisture was enough and the humidity was enough that it could be electrically conductive to this particular type of screen. Okay. So we can right. recognize it being touched. And that's the kind of one that you have on your phone. Most of them will be capacitive, yeah. aren't they? Capacitive, yes. yeah. I did then spend most of my research time going around my bedroom seeing how many objects work. Me too. Phone. And well, didn't actually, <laughs> not around your bedroom, around my house. <laughs> I did wonder what the heck you were doing in here. Um, Go on, what There works? was nothing surprising. It's not very exciting. I mean, it's obviously stuff that you know conducts electricity. You know, you're... Oh. Although I was quite excited that my spider plant does. Wow. Uh, so really? if my spider plant became conscious, it could hack into my phone. Okay, let yeah. me give you some examples wow. and see if yes. you can guess whether they work. A grape? Mm -hmm. um, yes. 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 Yeah, all right. A uh, plum? Yes. No. Yes. Oh, I think you're kind of right as a group because it did work, but it did work very well. Okay. Um, <laughs> a piece of alpaca poo? <laughs> no. Oh my God, you yes. opened up our trophy yes. in order so, to test this? Um, a year or so ago, we got an award uh, in Vienna, which was a small vial of alpaca poo. I opened it up and took up one of the little currents of poo and tried mm. to use my phone with it. Did it work or did it not work? Uh, I'd say yes, there was a current with your current. <laughs> yeah? Uh, it did not work. Oh. Uh, work. Um, an, an egg? Uh, which fried, bit of the egg? Scrambled, the boiled. Yeah, <laughs> just an egg, just an egg from the fridge. Oh no, no way! No, not in shell. Not no. in shell. You're right. A damp egg. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that. I'm going to say yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I yes. put okay. a bit of water on the egg and it worked. So anyway, oh, nice. um, thanks for listening to my TED talk. That's things. That <laughs> wow, what an insight to your brain that you went from egg to damp egg. Like most people would have moved on to the next object. But one thing that's really interesting, and I did try this in my house, but actually I read it on the internet, is a battery. So if you try and use a battery to um, operate your phone, it will only work if you use the negative side of the battery. And if you use the positive side of the battery, it won't work. Uh, and that is the explanation, really, of how these things work, because you have a tiny little electrical difference in your finger. Uh, and that's what the phone can tell. You know, it's very, very slightly charged your skin and that's mm -hmm. how it can tell the difference. So, and so there's not a current. It's not like there's a current obviously running from the ground through you to your phone. No, That's it's like, it. you know, if you have static electricity, yeah. um, because you've been walking on a carpet or you've been rubbing a lot of balloons against sure. you or something, <laughs> then you get a little shock. Um, well, that shock actually happens all the time. You always have that kind of tiny difference in electricity in your body, like the inside of your body is positively charged and the outside of your body is very slightly negatively charged. And that's what the phone can tell. It's yeah. not touch. So it's just connecting a circuit. It's like putting the crocodile clip on the circuit when you're at school. Your finger is literally connecting that little circuit. It's like putting the damp egg on the... On the <laughs> Stop <whatever>. saying damp <laughs> egg. <It's> so, <laughs> but is this... So when when you don't have... You know, when... Because some people... Or sometimes your finger doesn't work on your phone. It's really annoying. Hmm. And that, is that due to your having more dead skin, for example? So if you've got th really thick skin, does that damage it? Yes, Andy, do you have zombie fingers? Some people have this. Do I don't. But if I was a lumberjack, oh, really? for example, I might do. Yes. If you're working for my company, Cheery Orchard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You'd need to get yourself a stylus. So what is zombie is it... fingers, Anna? Uh, well, it's for lumberjacks. It's uh, particularly <laughs> suffered by lumberjacks and guitar players as well have it. Oh. And yeah, so if you've got very callous fingers, so they're very dry, so they're not conducting as well. Hmm. Uh, the recommendation is lick your finger. Or if you are one particular <laughs> Just woman... Just use a damp peg. <laughs> Just use a damp peg. <laughs> you can't quite get... Because it's not very pointy, is it? Um, one woman got a refund on her Chromebook because she insisted that it wow. just did not respond to her fingers wow. at wow. all. Okay, so I didn't know this. This is really cool. When they were making the iPhone, they still didn't have the keyboard touchscreen worked out the year before it was launched. And they developed this technique to work out what you're going to type next to kind of predict it. Okay. So if you hit T on your phone, yeah. the phone, they, they know that you're likelier to hit H next because of the word the, for example. And there are all these probabilities they can work out. So when you've hit T, 
what they call the hit region around the letter H on your phone keyboard, it grows a bit mm. so that oh. so it stays the same size to your eye and on the yeah, screen. Yeah. But beneath it, the technology knows that so there's this hit region around H which swells a bit. And then once you've hit TH, the hit region around E will swell a bit. So there's this okay. quivering, pulsating map that we can't see. What if you wanted it, to uh... write tug or something? Like, would it? does it mean you're more I... likely to make mistakes with more unusual letter pairs? Or... I think that's what it means. But fortunately, we don't write tug much. So <laughs> I can't, I there are no mind. words, are there? There are no words that begin TG, I don't think. Uh, no. I might try typing TG on my phone now. What if you were typing the word <laughs> cat gut? That's got a T Brilliant. and a G. Nice. Brilliant. <laughs> well, I actually type that more often than the word the. <laughs> <laughs> it should have up. Do you know who invented the touchscreen? Who? Uh, it was a man called Bent Stumpy. Um, who... No. <laughs> Bent what? Stumpy. Bent Stumpy. What, a, what a first name for Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Stumpy to get their son. <laughs> he was an engineer at CERN and... <laughs> He was working with someone called Frank Beck, uh, and Frank Beck asked Bent Stumpy um, to solve the problem of to build some uh, hardware for an intelligent system, which in just three console units would replace all the conventional buttons and switches. Sorry, I was just reading that. But basically, they wanted to get rid of all the buttons and switches and replace them with a new system. Uh, and Bent Stumpy went away. And a few days later, he came back with three different solutions. Um, one was a tracker ball. One was a programmable knob. Don't know exactly how the knob was programmable. Uh, and the other one was a touchscreen. Wow. Hey. Yeah. He should be the Steve Jobs of the time. They probably said to him, listen, we'd love to make you global famous, but the name's just not going to work, mate. No one's going to buy this product. <laughs> yeah. And it's... he wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't give up the name. No. Stumpy is <laughs> S-T-U-M-P-E. I think it's Stumpy. It could be Bent Stump. I'm not sure. Mm. I think Bent Stumpy. <laughs> Much better. That was the only option he offered them. He was like, okay, I'll make it Bent Stump. <laughs> my final offer. The first time that was used was in air traffic control, right? When mm. when that came along. And then it just wasn't used in anything else for 30 years. So it was in 1960, literally the mid-60s, 1965, um, and air traffic controllers used it and they called it a touch wire display. And it was, must have been so advanced. In 1966, as an air traffic controller, there was one wire that's attached to a computer that's getting into information about when all the planes are landing and what time and what platform um, or whatever <laughs> runway platform. they land on. <laughs> um, and then the other end of the wire would connect to the screen. And then the bottom of the screen, wherever you touched it, would touch a specific bit of wire that would transmit information back and forth. And they were doing this for 30 years. And yet it wasn't until really so the cool. 80s, the late 80s, 90s, that it was incorporated into other tech. It's amazing to think that Jimi Hendrix could have used a touchscreen if he had worked in air traffic control. <laughs> but he yes. couldn't have because he was a guitar player, so they wouldn't have worked. With him. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <Have his fingers. laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Um, stuff on muffins or not? Hmm. Ooh, if you've got, yeah. Um, so the British Museum might have been established as a result of a muffin. <laughs> what? So you might know that the British Museum was established by Sir Hans Sloane. Uh, after he died, all of his collection were put into this new museum um, because he had been collecting these loads of weird things like antiquities, rare books, all sorts of stuff. He kept them in his house. Uh, and then when it, got too much in his house he bought a house next door and put it all in there and he had loads of friends loads of famous friends who would come and meet, like have dinner with him and have a look at his amazing stuff um but once he was visited by handel and handel apparently put a buttered muffin on one of his rare books <laughs> uh, and sir hanslone was absolutely furious about this and he was like i can't have the place where i have my um, dinner parties in the same place as the place where i have all my rare stuff so he bought a new place out in chelsea and he put everything in there and it became a little museum of its own right rather than a house and then it was all the stuff from there that became the british museum Wow. That's well done, awesome. Muffin. Yeah. Do you think Handel was just being very ahead of his time and trying to operate what he thought was a Kindle <laughs> touchscreen muffin? <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in 2012, Southwest Airlines agreed to fly a single butterfly 2,000 miles after it overslept and missed its ride. 
<laughs> oh, it's adorable. It is. What a good service to have offered. This was uh, this is a problem that arisen with this butterfly, spotted by a woman called Marilyn Manos Jones. She was in Albany, New York, and she saw in her garden a monarch butterfly. And she happened to be a butterfly expert, so she knew that it was... Well, she was watching it from, like, metamorphosis stage, and she knew it was metamorphosing too late. So often, when the caterpillars go into their chrysalis stage, they'll sometimes wait it out too long, emerge late, they'll emerge a bit damaged, a bit unhealthy if they're slow to develop. She expected it to be like this and a lost cause. But it came out big, hearty, healthy, she said, and she knew that its swarm mates had already flown south because that's what they do for the winter uh, to get some warmer climate. And so she panicked and she thought, well, this guy isn't going to survive the winter up here in New York. So she rang up Southwest Airlines, obviously. And <laughs> she said, can you carry this guy to Texas, please, where it can cross the border into Mexico and join its friends? And they agreed. Right. And so what did they, they didn't give it a seat and, you know. <laughs> I think they made it share her seat. Which okay. is, I guess you do that with babies, don't you? Yeah. You can yeah. put them on your um, lap. If there's a problem with the flights when you're flying, you have to put your own gas mask on before you put your butterfly's gas mask on. That's, really yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Would have been hell to put a gas mask on it because it was wrapped in about 17 different layers. Uh, so oh. they packed it up in this like glassine, which is this, like very light transparent paper in, in an envelope made of that with a damp piece of cotton. Then they put it in a Tupperware then in another container with an ice pack uh, to keep it cool and calm, stop it panicking. And then they put that container into a bag that was padded out with layers of newspaper and towels. And it sat on her lap and flew all the way wow. down to San Antonio and then popped out, joined its friends and flew further south into South Mexico. Do we know it made it? Or did do we just have records up to the point at which she released this butterfly and then... <laughs> it got yeah. eaten by a bird immediately. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She released it and then we believe it probably survived, although we don't have confirmation it hasn't sent any postcards. But did she have to find the swarm in no. this bit of America? <laughs> so no. she just let it off, assuming that it would cross the border on its own and finish the... It knows yeah. where to go. It's a big risk. No, I get, I get that, but it's sort of not seeing it to its, you know, it's if you're trying to return it, has to be a, a missing. Yeah. There has to be a point at which you give up on this story and you give up on the <laughs> exactly. butterfly. This is not practical. You what? can't, you but, can't uh -oh. fly all the way to the swarm. It's like one of those EasyJet flights. Sometimes to get to Barcelona, you have to go to an airport that's 200 miles from Barcelona. Everyone knows that. Yeah, um, I think I'm with you, Dan. She's lazy. You've got to, you've got to see it through. He could just be popping up a bar in Texas still. I, to this day. Yeah. I, I think she's actually gone above and beyond what was required. <laughs> and I think if we all did this, it would, you know, for every disaster. Butterfly. It would just exactly what Greta Thunberg would say. You know? But we're talking about one single instance where she did three quarters of the trip. Yeah. And has no idea if it paid off. There's no end to this story. I don't think she should have done it either, Dan. No, but... I know. So why, so why do three quarters? It makes no sense at I all. I think that this is a wonderful, heartwarming story that Pixar need to get on immediately. You know, it the butterfly that's left yeah. behind in cold New York and has to get yeah. to... Sounds yes. Amazing. Yeah. yeah it would has be a champion who says, I'll get you there, but then only gets them three quarters of the way there and says, all right, off your pop, wherever twist. you want. That's a twist halfway that's through. The... That's the low point, yeah, most yeah. of the way through the film. In all those films, there is a low point, like when oh, Paddington yes. leaves his family temporarily in Paddington mm -hmm. 1, or when Paddington is sent to prison in Paddington 2, or I, I could go on. <laughs> um, you can get, I, we must have said before, that you can get butterflies that drink tears of animals, mm. but also humans. But you also get blood feeding, sweat feeding, and tear feeding butterflies. <laughs> so for these butterflies that woman who was bleeding out of her eyes it must have been it's a banquet it's a banquet it's, banquet. it's a three course meal it's one of those world buffet grills where you have 20 different cuisine styles <laughs> yeah. all served at the same buffet exactly um the blood ones are quite interesting um because they will actually pierce your skin wow. like to get your blood uh generally not with humans um generally with other animals although it can happen with humans and it what they think is they evolved from fruit-eating moths and butterflies, and they would pierce the skin of the fruit to get at the juicy stuff inside, and they evolved into blood-drinking moths and butterflies. Um, so but, will they just be drinking the blood of little ants and stuff? Usually? No, they'll drink or like what, what proper. They drink? They'll drink proper mammal blood. 
for sure. Uh, uh, it's only the males who do it. Uh, and it's same with tears, actually. Only males will drink the tears of animals. Oh. And that's because they're trying to get the sodium from the animal, which can be in the blood or in the tears. But the females, they get the sodium directly from the male during mating. So they don't need to get it from the from the other animals. They get it through the... You get second hand. They get second hand sodium. Yeah. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> um, I read this amazing thing about monarch butterflies, which astounds me and this is part of actually their big migration that they do uh when they're going south and it is the fact that they have to at one point in this huge journey they have to cross lake superior and lake superior biggest lake in the world it's it's ginormous and that is a huge moment of the trip where they really have to go gung-ho on it and this really odd thing happens that biologists have been looking into for quite a long time which is they all fly in this sort of straight line and then out of nowhere, they take a turn to the east and they fly east for a while and then they turn back flying south again. And they they haven't known why and they're still not completely sure. But the latest theory is that it's a memory of the past from old days when they were traveling down and there used to be, there must have been a jutting out mountainous <laughs> bit amazing. in Lake Superior. Where, <laughs> and it's a memory go, that this is where we take a right. I remember when we used to go on holiday when I was a kid and my dad would drive us many, many hundreds of miles to where we were going on holiday and he'd always be driving around going, I'm sure there was a service station around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So they think there was something there that was blocking the path for generations and generations, and then it went, but they still in their head go, oh, this That's, is where we take a right to get away from the blocky thing, even though nothing evidence. is there. There would be evidence, wouldn't there, that there had been a mountain here or something? Yeah, I mean, there would be, right? You'd think, but they can't explain. They just don't That's, know why they take a right there. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That That's so, so cool, the species evidence of a previous mountain mm. that... Must have been missing for a while now. Yeah. It must Where's be some thousands of years. Where's it gone? Yeah. That's very cool. I wonder who's in charge of the sat nav there. <laughs> who's jabbing the muffin at the sat nav? I don't like jabbing the muffin at all. <laughs> That's a phrase. So, how many butterflies do you think there are in the Natural History Museum? Dead ones, I mean. Okay. Um, <sighs> I guess. Three. A thousand. Oh, come on. Three thousand. Three. Twenty-five. It's 50,000. 50,000. You're going to have to go quite a lot higher than that. Oh, okay. uh, oh. 500,000. Keep going. 7 million. Keep wow. going. No. 100 million. No, no. Yeah, you went too far. <laughs> <laughs> there are 8,712,000 to dead butterflies and moths in the Natural History Museum. Uh, wow. They're in the glass fronted cases that, if laid out on the floor, they would cover around 30 football pitches which is about 10 times bigger than that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. The oh, week, my word. Which at Christ. the moment is a very on-topic reference, but probably in two weeks' time, everyone <laughs> will have forgotten it. The collection began with uh, Walter and Charles Rothschild, uh, who are amateur entomologists, and they gave more than 2 million butterflies and moths to the Natural History Museum. It's too many. You don't want that many. It must... Well, maybe, but Walter Rothschild used to say that of the two million, more than two million butterflies, he didn't have a single duplicate in his entire collection. <laughs> oh, come on. It can't be true, right? I've got can't like be. packets of football stickers with a duplicate <laughs> in the same packet. It can't be true. Two million with no duplicates. Amazing. Wow. That's Absolute so good. Absolute rubbish. Some of them have bullet holes in them, don't they? Because this, really? this is how they used to collect butterflies no. in the Shoot olden days. Them. Yeah, even at the turn of the 20th century, even they were still doing it. Wow. So the specimen that the Natural History Museum has of, for instance, the largest butterfly in the world um, was collected by Shotgun in 1906 by a guy <laughs> oh called Albert Stuart Meek, who sounds not very meek if he's going around machine gunning butterflies down. How big was it, Anna? Because you can get quite big butterflies, right? Was this it... one has a 20 centimetre wingspan and the biggest of its kind has a 26 okay. centimetre wingspan. Big. That's very big. Quite big. It's a biggie. Yeah. Um, Still thinks yeah. like feels like a shotgun would obliterate it. <laughs> they use special ammo. I mean, I'm sure you could just get a net. It feels like um, using a uh, sledgehammer to crack a nut, but they use special butterfly 
friendly ammo, not friendly to the butterfly itself, <laughs> but friendly to the shape of its wing. Oh. Wow. There are people who um, aim to wipe out butterflies, like the New Zealand government. Oh, they are the first. New Zealand is the first country to eradicate a butterfly within its own territory deliberately. A single species, or all? A single species called the great white butterfly, which uh, they eat the rare cresses of New Zealand. I didn't know that was a problem in New Zealand, but get this. Out of 79 kiwi cresses, 57 are at risk of extinction. And these bastard butterflies were eating them. So the New Zealand government said, no, we are going to destroy this butterfly in New Zealand because it's, it's plentiful elsewhere in the world. So they conducted 263,000 searches. They offered a bounty for of $10 for every dead great white butterfly you turned in. What if and, you don't like bounties? <laughs> uh, then you get a galaxy or a twirl. Nice. Um, and they released wasps that hunted them. And they did this for about four years, this savage butterfly hunt, and they found no more. They declared that they had uh, won. Right. Makes them sound like really bad guys. And I'm happy because the New Zealand government has got a lot of good press the last year and a half, and it's about time someone brought them down as butterfly murderers. Yeah, what year was this? Is this this pre-Jacinda, or is this going to be a a stain on her career? No, this is 2010 to 2014, I think, that the campaign Ah, was happening. So It didn't sound very Jacinda. It's not a stain. It's the rare cresses. Think of the rare cresses that are on the verge of extinction. Of all the fucking things you can kill a butterfly for, some cress. I'm on their side. Sandwiches without (laughs) (laughs) just very quickly back to the original fact. 2012 was when this story happened, when the butterfly was taken by plane. It was a bit of a big year for taking singular animals that were migrating and were left behind on uh, in the news. So there was a story in England. This also in 2012, a cuckoo was found badly injured in a garden and was transported by British Airways along with the person who found it um, to Turin to join the migration of the other cuckoos that had already set off. And they knew that it was the last of the cuckoos to fly away because it was tagged. So while the butterfly was being flown almost to Mexico, this this, uh, cuckoo was being flown to Turin to meet up with the migrating cuckoos. And then over in Russia, again in 2012, there was a migration of endangered Siberian white cranes um, that weren't quite finding their way. So Vladimir Putin got into a motorized hand glider and dressed up in garb that sort of emulated the white crane and tried to steer them unsuccessfully, unfortunately. But um, he was flying above them, trying to get them to follow him and start migrating. But then Putin said, you, crane. (laughs) <laughs> and then they misrepresented it and ended up going into Crimea. <laughs> Very strong. Animal! <laughs> okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At James Harkin. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna? You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Also, check out all of the videos from our 20 hour comic relief marathon. They are now all online, all 35 videos. Have a watch and please do donate to the cause if you can. Comicrelief.com slash fish is where you'll find our just giving page. Um, it would really help some people out. All right, we'll see you again next week, guys, with another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>